We are excited to be, uh, to be at this teaching portion of our uh, worship service. So if you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, we are in chapter 6, as you know, book of Ecclesiastes. And believe it or not, we actually have completed uh, the first half of Ecclesiastes, and now we begin this second half. Now, the stage is still talking to his son um, about what life is like with God and without God at the center, and it continues to be for us a very strong evangelistic uh, book. It's, it's, it's evangelistic in nature, as we've been seeing all throughout our study of this wonderful book. Here in the second half, he goes in a slightly different direction. How so? Well, he made his point in the first half of the book that no one can get actually a firm, a firm grasp on life. They cannot manipulate or control it or get lasting satisfaction for that matter. No lasting gain or compensation for one's toil under the sun. Now, try as some will by whatever approach, hedonism, humanism, riches, power grabs, tyrannical government, it all amounts to nothing more than a chasing after the wind. His challenge to those in his first half of the book is best couched, I think, in Jesus' words, what does it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? Now, with that firmly established, he goes on to show that life is also enigmatic, that is, elusive, past finding out, mysterious in this second uh, second uh, half of the book. He still uses the same Hebrew word that has become the leading word of the book. That's hebel. Uh, but whereas before it meant fleeting or unreliable or impermanent in the first half of the book, it takes on a very different kind of uh, meaning, although complementary. Uh, it's unknowable, mysterious, it's with this theme that the sage is going to question humanity's ability to know anything for certain under the sun. Now, people who live under the sun without God in their lives uh, know only what they see in creation, what theologians call general revelation. And interestingly enough, creation clearly communicates that God exists. Isn't that interesting? The, word bear, the world bears his imprint and more than this, it also communicates that he is worthy to be praised. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, That which is known about God is evident to everyone. His invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly experienced, I'm sorry, perceived, being understood by what has been made. No one is without excuse. Huh. Well, if people know this, well, then why don't they acknowledge God in their lives? Well, because, as Paul says, they suppress the truth. And they would prefer really to live a lie. That's lie with a capital L. The lie that Satan introduced way back in the garden, namely that one can be his own God. And since the fall, people have, like gods, been creating their own reality, which is really not reality at all, but a fantasy world, more like an alternative universe, where they do whatever they want. Just read the rest of Romans 1, and you'll see exactly what depravity looks like. Or you can just look at what's taking place 
in people's lives in our culture. Now, general revelation affirms to any observer then that God exists, but it is not enough to rescue anyone from a depraved condition. Make no mistake about that. I like to say that general revelation is enough to condemn you, all or without excuse, but not enough to save you. For salvation from condemnation, one needs more. He needs a life-giving word from God himself, and such a word is found only in the Bible. God has graciously given this truth, and it comes with his authority, and it is absolute on all matters of, of life, of human life, the soul, the heart, spirituality, God, sin, condemnation, and how we can have a relationship with God. In a word, he has defined for us reality, normalcy. And that sounds like great news, doesn't it? Well, not to fallen souls of this world. Now, Romans 1 tells us that they firmly rejected God's truth, which brought severe consequences. They became senseless. Their hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they were actually fools. And Paul gives some very terrifying characteristics of this living descent into chaos and madness in his letters to young Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says that, that this kind of life is founded actually on the teaching of demons and deceitful spirits. And this goes for any worldview, whether formal or informal, that is directly opposed to biblical truth. If it's not God's truth, then it is necessarily satanic. Paul gives more characteristics in 2 Timothy. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, he says, People are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, slanderers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. I think that's a short list. And some of these, he says, even counterfeit the faith. He says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And in chapter 4 of that book, we see that they hate sound doctrine. Not able to tolerate it, they will find teachers that will teach them what they want to hear. And so they turn away from truth and they believe in error. Now, beloved, we live in a world where where those estranged from God haven't a clue as to what life is, what is what it's supposed to be, how it can be that way, and why it's the way it is now, when God is not the center of it. They think they have a good idea or a good handle, looking to humanistic philosophies to make sense of it. They define it in ways that will comfort their anxious hearts, confirm their selfish ways, provide them with a sense of self-worth. And the longer depravity exists, the worse its manifestations. You know, it took America only 230 years to determine that there, that, that there are more than two genders, that go beyond, people go beyond gender, in fact, and convinced themselves that men can actually get pregnant. Just 230 years. There are children on social media claiming to be animals and even inanimate objects, and they dress the part. Ludicrous? Yep. 
Bizarre? Absolutely. Sad, sick and insane is really how I would put it. This, this is life in denial, even of scientific, medical, and biological facts. But the message that comes to us from the sage is that the definition of life is not up for grabs. Oh no, it's, it's not relative, it's not fluid, it's not anyone's guess. If, as Genesis 1 says, people are made in the image of God, then life belongs to God. So God created it, he gets to define it, and he has. And what he has said is non-negotiable. Of course, people today want none of it. You know that. They bristle at the mention of it. Get that outdated book away from me. They think the Christian life and living it is a digression to the dark ages, going backwards, undoing all that they have managed to accomplish in believing their lie. Advanced societies such as us, well, we don't need the Bible, they say. We've come of age. We know better. This is the crowd under the sun that the sage now addresses. And his response to this claim of knowing better is in verses 12, 11, I'm sorry, 10 to 12, God Almighty has provided an absolute definition of life that renders any dispute over it to be sheer ignorance and unprofitable, since the debater himself lacks understanding and cannot know what's good for him any more than he can know the future. Therefore, embrace it. Embrace this absolute definition of life that God gives. Let's unpack that. The first truth is such a foundational one. It comes in verse 10. God Almighty has provided an absolute definition of life. He's provided it in the word. Sage tells us, his, he tells his unbelieving audience, it's time that you face facts. You've been listening to my analysis from common life experiences up to this point, and the same thing to do is to acknowledge the way God has defined reality and embrace it. Stop bucking against it. That'll only lead to heartache, fleeting pleasure, and your ultimate destruction. And we would do well at strategic places in the presentation of our gospel to urge our listeners to come to terms with reality, as, we've, as we prove it all along from Scripture. Now look at the first few verses, or few words rather, of verse 10. The sage says, whatever exists has already been named. Uh, names today don't carry the same significance as they did in the ancient Near East. The ancients believed that the name actually characterized the very essence of a person. The name captured what you were. Eve was the mother of all the living, Adam said. Cain meant here he is, referring to God's promise to bring forth the seed of woman. Many Hebrew names even incorporate the name of God in an abbreviated form, the form El, which is Lord, like Daniel, while other names refer to God's gracious acts, like Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. The same was true of, for, for places as well, place names. Jacob called the place where he wrestled with the angel Peniel. 
because he saw the face of God there. Panayo means face of God. The same was true for name changes after people's conversions. Jacob, his name was changed to Israel. Saul became Paul. Cephas became Peter. Now, when the sage says that God named everything that exists, he really means more specifically that God defined everything. God defined reality for us. And a good illustration of this is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind. Now, the word kind refers to the nature of an object considered. So animals, sea creatures, birds of the air, all were made with their own, with their own unique nature, a nature that defines them. And human beings are no exception. Sage says, and it is known what man is. Oh, yes, it's known. God made Adam with a unique nature as well. The Hebrew word Adam, in fact, refers to the ground, the earth. Yes, dirt. In the garden, the earth must have had a red hue because the Hebrew dam is red. Uh, it means red, so Adam was the red man. Because in Genesis 2-7, we read that Adam was taken from the dust of this red earth. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Now, this is not some kind of shorthand for evolution, as if the ground really refers to some primordial ooze teeming with single-celled organisms that evolved over millions of years to multi-cell organisms that eventually produced a prehistoric chicken that eventually evolved into a donkey, and then into a chimp, and finally into you. You'll excuse my unscientific summary, but I think you get the idea. There is none of that here in the text. In the first place, Moses specifically tells us that God made everything according to its nature, which has biological boundaries, by the way, that cannot be crossed, in case you're wondering about that. In the second place, nothing in the text of Genesis insists that we should understand create the creation account of man as highly figurative and symbolic. Nothing. It's plain language. God literally took dirt, formed Adam with the apparent age, and rather quickly. In the third place, only man is created in the image of God, which means that he is morally responsible for his actions. We have a pet-sitting business. Lots of dogs come in and out. Never once have I ever seen a dog sit in the corner of my house and sulk over something he did five years ago. <laughs> Only man has received the inbreathing of the spirit that lives on after physical death. In the fourth, fourth place, God made man or Adam to be his representative on earth to rule and subdue it. Adam was truly the crown of God's creation. Now, as true as all of that is, it's not really the emphasis of Ecclesiastes 6.10. No, the sage focuses our attention not on man's exalted position in God's creation, because he's not comparing man to the rest of creation. In our text, he is comparing man to God himself. Hmm. It's a good thing to do in, a, in evangelistic situations. Uh, when you understand that, you understand that this crown 
of creation with authority over the creatures, as intellectual as, and as complex as he is, is from God's point of view just dust. That's it. For you are dust, God said to Adam, and you and to dust you shall return. Is there any doubt that physical life is fleeting, a breath, a vapor that lasts for a brief moment in time and then it's over? Is there any question who's in charge, who the creator is and who the creation is? The sobering truth that we are dust is necessary to, adm to admit and embrace if a person is going to be properly related to God himself. You need to know who you are in relationship to the Almighty. Now, what God has defined and named is beyond dispute because God is mightier than any debater. And that's what we read in the rest of verse 10. For he cannot dispute with the one who is mightier than he. We are the creation. He is the creator. We have no jurisdiction over our lives, contrary to popular belief. They belong to him. We don't get to define them. That's his business. And he has defined us, and absolutely. But you must understand, it's the nature of depravity to redefine reality. <clears throat> That's what Satan did for Adam in tempting him to disobey the Lord. He pointed, I'm sorry, he painted a, a completely false picture of reality and of God as well. And when he was done with Adam, Adam was fully convinced that God was holding out on him and that he didn't need God after all. Wow, he could become his own God and know all things perfectly. And he forgot his humble beginnings, that he was dust. It's the nature of depravity to redefine reality that God has defined. It's no surprise that the New Testament will go on to describe false teachers as self-deceived. How does it put it? Deceiving and being deceived, right? Even though God provides a clear picture in this world of what people are in their fallenness and what they can be in Christ, the depraved nevertheless insist on defining themselves in their own terms. But the sage states for the record that no one can dispute with the Almighty because he's the Almighty. Job discovered this the hard way. Notice the absoluteness of the statement in verse 10. He, speaking of man, cannot dispute with the Almighty. Cannot. It's impossible. Now, people do. We know that. The fact of God's almightiness means absolutely nothing to them. Our opening psalm for this morning shows that the nations rejected God's will for them in his promised Messiah. They became restless over his decrees. The Hebrew word restless there really means out of control, thronged tempestuously. They're in an uproar. They would not be subject to God's absolute truth, so they plot against him, but it's all in vain. They can conspire all they want against his decrees. Verse 11 argues that as a matter of course, God reveals any dispute over what he has defined to be sheer ignorance and unprofitable. In the first part of verse 11, notice that the longer one debates God, the more he shows his ignorance. <laughs> That's just 
that is just a wonderful thing. <clears throat> For there are many words which increase futility, the sage says. I love that. It, it tells us that the Bible is not only logically irrefutable, but those who give it their best shot only prove just how much they don't know. They could be PhDs from Ivy League schools. I knew a lot of them. Renowned for their intellectual achievements, published many times over, it doesn't make a difference. What they say about reality is completely wrong, and the more they wax eloquent about life, the more ignorant they sound. <clears throat> Let me give you an example <clears throat> from just three of the most popular and well-respected social ideologies, all right? Are you ready? The first is the theory of evolution, which we already hinted at. Now, there is a reason it's called a theory. It's not been proven. Did you know that? It's not absolute by any means. In fact, Philip Johnson showed how ridiculous the theory uh, is in his important 1993 publication of Darwin on Trial, which pointed to the incredible lack of support of empirical data. It's just not there. And then Michael Behe, in another work, uh, 2006 publication, Darwin's Black Box, I recommend it highly, it demonstrated how biochemical changes and DNA contradict many parts of the theory. It just doesn't jibe. But honestly, folks, it, it's enough, I think, that the Bible tells us that the origin of man is not evolution. Still, teachers present the theory as fact in public schools. Doctors presuppose it in their research. It's requisite belief for the study of anthropology, archaeology, and religion. But make no mistake, it is a denial of God's word. How about mental illness? I bring this up with fear and trembling. This is a tough one. Gets lots of people uneasy. This, too, is ubiquitous in American life, not just with the medical and pill industries. Lay people in America <clears throat> who know nothing about psychology use its language all the time to describe reality. But psychiatry is grounded in observations of human behavior made by fallen individuals. It's a fact that its basis or it bases, rather, the, the understanding of normalcy on averages. We know what's normal on the basis of counting noses. And any behavior that is not normal is theorized to be the result of a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, the Diagnostic Statistics Manual lists <clears throat> what psychologists have determined to be legitimate diseases and disorders along with an approved list of psychotropic drugs to go with each one of them. Uh, we don't deny, of course, the existence of organic illnesses, not one bit. Cancer is real. Tuberculosis is real. Thyroid disease is real. There are liver and kidney disorders. Leukemia is a cancer of the blood. ALS, MS, immune deficiencies, all of them real and painful, but 99% of them are provable by the medical world, by medical testing. The fallacy you see that psychiatry makes is that it applies the medical model to the mind to argue that it can be sick as a result of chemical imbalances. Now, few people know that chemical imbalances behind medical illnesses is a theory. 
not a fact. The most reliable medical researchers from Harvard, Harvard Medical Journal, will admit that. And I've talked to them about it. Yet doctors all over the country accept all of this as it were fact. How can the mind be sick? Do you ever wonder about that? How can you measure the mind? Is there a machine out there that you can use to measure the mind? What is the mind anyway? Well, the Bible tells us that the mind is the heart, the real you, where everything you do is first born there. And God says the heart is sinful, and, it's the, and the only thing that can heal it is Christ's redemption that brings repentance and change. Amen. There is no machine that can measure the mind, and to suppose that we can determine whether you are normal or abnormal by the law of averages is frankly ridiculous. Those who identify as transgender in this country make up less than 1% of the population. Now that's hardly the majority, yet it's enough, it's enough that many in the medical field will perform gender reassignment surgery and insurances will cover it. So is it normal? And if it isn't yet, when does it become so? When it's 50% of the population? Folks, modern psychotherapy ignores human depravity. It ignores sin, it ignores guilt, it ignores all of that. It's, it's necessarily anti-biblical, and therefore it flat-out denies what God, the author of life, says about the condition of human nature. They reject the author of life who knows better than anyone about human nature and its problems and what it needs most. Well, enough said there. Let me hasten over to my last example, and that is religion. Religion, in any and all forms, whether formalized or informal, with its own dogma like the Roman Catholic Church or like the naturalist approach that just goes off the feelings of being in harmony with the nature and trees and rocks and such. Religious belief demands faith to work. Faith that is nothing more than a, a hope, a chance, I think the word is leap, into the unknown. It's not biblical faith, of course, because biblical faith is based on reason and historical fact, like the virgin conception, Jesus' death and burial. We know that. We know also that the tomb was empty. We know post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were, vali were validated by, was validated by 500 witnesses, some of whom spoke with him, touched him, and ate with him. His ascension into heaven was in their presence. Faith that the Bible calls for is not a leap. It doesn't pick up where reason leaves off. Oh, no, it, it's based on reason and historical facts. Religion, both ancient and modern, is really a man-made invention to appease the anxious soul that wants to appeal to, 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 to some trumped-up power for assistance in handling life, as well as assurance of a, a better place after death. And all of it denies the gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Bottom line is evolution and mental illness are theories and religion is a leap. And these three are the most popular social ideologies that people use to create reality for themselves, a reality that is false. 
Second part of verse 11 tells us that none of them offers any advantage for living life to the worldly wise or debater of this age. He says, what then is the advantage to a person? Well, yeah, when you think or when you understand that human existence under the sun that is separated from God and his absolute truth essentially creates an alternate universe from, from the one that God has, has uh, created and has defined for them, sure. Sure, there's no advantage at all. If, if, they're, if, if they are going to take hold of their divinity as Satan promised that they could, well, then we would expect them to be creators of their own world, their own universe. But what they create is not real. It's a lie. And they don't realize that they, they're in bondage to it. What then is the advantage, the sage asks? It's a great evangelistic question. We might ask folks similar questions. What do you, what do you hope to gain by inventing your own reality? Tell me. Or, or being your own God. Is it peace of mind, happiness, confirmation? I mean, how silly is all of that? Well, the sage has made some powerful statements that will certainly challenge, if not outright offend, his audience. Mark that. This is offensive stuff. <clears throat> now, it's not his intention to offend, but to give hope. But because his message is spiritual, <clears throat> it will offend the natural, unbelieving, depraved intellect. No question about it. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the natural man is at enmity with God. And having said that, the skeptics of biblical truth may persist in wanting to know why. Why is it futile? Tell me to argue against scripture. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> the answer that the sage gives in is in verse 12, and it's very clever. I would, uh, I would summarize it this way. The debater himself lacks understanding and cannot know what is good for him any more than he can know his own future. I don't like that. We've just shown that evolutionists and psychiatrists are theorists by their own admission. I'm not making that up. <clears throat> and religion, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> <clears throat> and religion is unreliable. <clears throat> but if these so-called practitioners of body, mind, and soul don't know, then who does? I mean, who can? And that's the sage's point here. For, the, for who knows what is good for a person during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? Who knows? It's rhetorical. The answer is clearly no one, especially if he rejects the author of life and his clarifying word. Or well, trying to live without the Lord and his word is like skydiving without a parachute, and it's just as dangerous you may enjoy the ride down, the view, but the terrible splat comes before you know it. I think it's so important to help our inquirer get a, a sense of how much of a distortion he's made of life by rejecting God. The sage goes on in the text, here in the next clause in verse 12, to liken him, in the, to, liken him to a, a shadow. It's very clever. He says he will spend the few years of his life like a shadow. A shadow, as you know, is a mere representation of reality, right? It's therefore by nature unclear. It's vague. It's opaque. In fact, the Old Covenant, for example, could only foreshadow godly realities 
of the new covenant, but it was not as good as the real thing. It's a shadow. Writer to the Hebrews tells people, don't be living in the shadows. We've got the real thing now. A shadow is also a fleeting representation, doesn't last at all. So the debater who lives in constant dispute of the truth is like a shadow in that the years of his sorry life will come to an end before he knows it. It's fleeting. The verse says a few years, in fact. But more than this, his life is like a shadow in that he is intellectually shallow. His thinking about life is unclear. It's it's vague. It's opaque. It's not well-defined. He's missing an accurate view of reality, of, of both the present and the future. A fallen, depraved life is like a shadow that is that is a pale representation of what God intended it to be. And not just pale, but like a shadow that often distorts their objects, actually misrepresenting it by making them either too long or too big or too small or too short. The godless live a distorted life of reality. They really do. This is actually a sad commentary on our times too, isn't it? An unbiblical view of anthropology will lead people to live a freakish existence, as we're seeing. And let's be clear here, whatever their view, it's anti-biblical because it is necessarily satanic. Paul referred to it as the doctrine of demons. It's born in the universities. It's adopted by Capitol Hill to push its agenda. It's protected by the legislature and given rights all its own, propagated then by liberal media to deceive the public into thinking that it's the norm and bought by teachers that teach it to our kids and CEOs who make it policy and corporate. All the while, those who recreate themselves by throwing off the image of God for another and produce this distortion of human life, think all the while that they have captured reality. Yeah, you talk to them. They'll, they're happy. I've arrived. I finally figured me out. The ironic thing is that the one who would protest against the Almighty's definition of reality and claim to know better cannot know the future. Isn't that ironic? Oh, I know better than God. I just can't know the future. He says, for who can tell a person what will happen after him under the sun? This is an undeniable fact of life. No one can know the future. Uh, And I cannot guarantee what will become of you in five minutes from now, less much less five years from now. I mean, the ceiling could fall down in 30 seconds and ruin your plans for the afternoon. An educated guess, by the way, doesn't count. Okay, Educated guesses don't count here. The educated guesser is no better than meteorologists who seem to be wrong more often than not, and at least in, in the East, and they still get paid. God as the Almighty has defined life absolutely. And those who would protest don't know what they're talking about. How can can they, when they reject important biblical truth and the one who authored it? They're totally deceived, unaware of their best version of themselves, that it's a complete distortion of God's creation and and it is utterly profitless. 
Now, we've fleshed out the main idea of this passage almost. There is still a small clause at the very end. It says, therefore, embrace the truth. It's not explicitly stated in the text, I admit, but certainly it is implicit. It is an implicit truth from the text. And before I say a few words about it, I want to build some context so that you can see just how obvious an implication it is and appreciate why we also need to include it in our own gospel presentations. The sage has told us what life is really like, how God has defined it from the very beginning. And because of the fall and the depravity of man, that life without him leads to death. God has done something to redeem people from it and given them back a new life. He has recreated life in them, so to speak, because they cannot. They are lacking in knowledge. So God did something about this. He, he pro- as he promised Adam, he would, and Noah, and Abraham, and Moses, and David, and the exiles through the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that he would. He sent Messiah, who is the very word of God to the earth to reveal to lost humanity what life really looks like what normalcy really looks like and how they can have it, how they can be redeemed. In John 1, our reading for this morning captures these truths and, and they're summed up in the message, I believe, of Ecclesiastes 6, 10 to 12. And our call to action is here as well. John says that Christ is the light of mankind. He brings the true meaning of life to us, true reality. And God shone that light of truth into the dark hearts of humanity. Men on their own, of course, will never grasp it, and they'll always reject it. But it has the power to enlighten every person, and God does enlighten some. And we, therefore, need to testify about this light, just like John the Baptist, so that all who hear it might believe through Christ. That's the call to action. This call to action even coincides with our opening psalm for this morning, which advises the godless to come to their senses and yield to God's instruction, serve him with reverence, and embrace his anointed before it's too late. Four or so hundred years ago, or later, I should say, from the psalm, from Ecclesiastes, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the understanding of those who have understanding. I will confound. Where is the wise person? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And two millennia later, after Paul wrote that, John Samus would write 
of the benefits for those who embrace Christ in the first stanza of a wonderful hymn that we sing, Trust and Obey. I'll close with these words this morning. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. When we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey.